read How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie as often as you can. You get done reading it, read it again, and read it again, and read it again. Because the hardest thing for people to do when they transition out of that public sector and into the private sector is, is how, to, how, to, how to just engage with people, right? Listen, I may not be the most qualified, you may not be the most qualified guy for the job, but you're the right guy. You know what I mean? It's how you interface with people, how you communicate, how you present yourself, right? How you are as a leader, a compassionate, kind, loving person as a leader. The rest of the stuff you can learn. Now, you got to get your feet wet a little bit before you before you pull chocks and get out of there. You got to start building your network, right? That That's a huge deal. Networking and, and, and building relationships and fostering and nurturing those relationships. You're going to have to do things for free, right? I would say that if you're transitioning out of the police department and, and you have a certain skill set, while you're in the police department, be an auditor, be an investigator, be the community outreach and the community engagement person. I was, I was the equivalent of a grunt in the Marine Corps when I was on the job. All I did was chase people with guns. That's all I did in South Central Los Angeles and in South Los Angeles. That's all I did. Guns, guns, chase people, climb fences, shootings. That's all I wanted to do. But how does that, how does that help me when I get out? It, it doesn't. Welcome to the Transition Drill Podcast. As members of the first responder and military communities, we need to be planning today for our transition from these careers. Because unfortunately, as many have experienced, these careers can tell us the ride is over before we're ready for it to be done. My name is Paul Pantani and I've spent the past 30 years in law enforcement, working in various assignments and promoting through the ranks of leadership. With the help of my guests, who like you are either former or current military members or first responders, the goal of this podcast is to provide you with information to help you in your planning. But just as important, we can't forget to take care of ourselves today. So I'm also going to have guests who are going to talk about how to be more physically and mentally fit. I'm joined this week by Andrew Gonzalez. Andrew and I had a great conversation. Maybe it's because we're both originally from New York. But as a young man growing up in the Bronx, Andrew's future wasn't looking too bright. So his father, who was a Vietnam veteran, pushed him towards the Marine Corps. Andrew eventually served eight years and got out in 2000, choosing not to re-enlist a second time because of family obligations. During our conversation, he talks about how he loved being in the Marine Corps, and one of his life regrets was not staying in. After getting out of the military, he knew he had to continue in a position of service, so he joined the LAPD, and he was a cop for 21 years and retired in 2020. Today, he's the Director of Asset Protection and Supply Chain Distribution for a multi-million dollar company. In our conversation, Andrew talks about his emotional stress and anxiety related to his time as a police officer. Hell, he saw his first double homicide while in training his battles with alcohol, and how he took back control of his life. He also provides some good advice for those making the transition from law enforcement to the corporate world. Thank you for taking the time to listen. Please enjoy episode 62. What I first want to talk to you about is Uh, riding a bicycle from LA to basically central California, correct? Yeah, Newman, California, yeah. How'd that come about? Um... Man, that's that's pretty cool. Well, here's here's the thing. Um, I remember just kind of peripherally seeing the story that that an LAPD officer had ridden his bike to, you know, uh, Central California. I couldn't remember the agency, but I remember it was to honor a fallen officer. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I did triathlons for a bunch of years. If you, you know, Google my last name, there's cycling in my family history. So cycling's always kind of been one of those things. Yeah. 
right after 9-11, that group that rode from California to um, was it New, New York, York yeah. uh, there was a part of me that was like, God, I would really want to do that. So yeah. anytime I see a story that um, is law enforcement related, especially in memorial of something and then cycling, yeah. it always kind of draws me to it. Yeah. And so I remembered that story when you and I connected and I, I was like, that name sounds familiar. Yeah. And so I went back and I, I like, you know, looked up the, the article and it was you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, a uh, good friend of mine, um, he's an LAPD guy and he, he, uh, runs a nonprofit, uh, Blue Coat Foundation. And so, um, the, at the time I, I was, I was already starting to deal with a little bit of the mental health stuff. Right. I, I was kind of confused as to what was going on, but, um, when, when I had learned that Ron L. Singh had been murdered and it was that close to Christmas. Right. And, um, it hit me super hard. Like it really, it buckled me, man. And, um, I, I never knew him. He's, he's a cop, you know? And, and so it hit me. So I reached out to Chris and said, Hey man, we got to do something, uh, for his family. We got to raise some money. We got to do something, man. We got to bring, bring eyes to the story. So at the time I was, I had, I, I knew that he had started something called Project Endure. And it was when two LAPD officers, they ran from uh, LA to Sacramento. I, uh, I remember that also. Yeah, two LAPD cops uh, in full uniform. Man. I was going to say, yeah. I, I, in my mind, I was just thinking now, not SWAT gear, like uh, regular police yeah. uniform. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, man, I got to do something like that, but it's got to be crazy. So, um, I said, I want to, I want to ride my bike from LA County all the way up to Newman, California, right to Newman police department. And I'm like, but I want to do it in one single speed, one gear, right? I want to ride through the grapevine. And at a minimum, I want to do a hundred miles a day, blistering heat. That's, we got to do something that, that, you know, I, I mean, the average person can't do every day. And, uh, and so we did it, man. I, I got on my single speed bike. I rode from LA County all the way up to Newman, California in, in about, you know, total three days, maybe. Um, and selfishly, I think it was more, more about me at the time. Right. I just wanted to feel like I was a part of something because at that, at that time in my career, I was really starting to spiral pretty bad. Um, I was losing my identity. I didn't know what the hell was going on, to be honest with you. Um, but I knew that I wanted to be a part of something else, something that was bigger than me. And, um, and so that's why we did it. And it was a beautiful thing, man. I got to meet the chief of police over there up at Newman and I got to meet Ron L's family. Um, it was, it was good, man. It was good. It was good for me. And it was, it was good for everybody involved. And, um, you know, hopefully here in the near future, we do something else like that again. But, but, uh, yeah, that's how that started. Were you a cyclist before that? On and off. I was, I was mostly, mostly mountain biking. Um, I did some road riding, but nothing, nothing with any regularity, but I, I always try to, you know, exercise, do some more, more of a runner than anything like that. But still even, even to take on that task, um, on a single speed. Yeah. And that was brutal, man. Again, like you pointed out, you know, not to, not to completely overshadow what the, end goal was was to honor that fallen officer but the the sacrifice you know the physical sacrifice that you yeah. put yourself through yeah uh, for somebody who doesn't ride the idea yeah. of riding that far on a single speed yeah 
That, that's commendable. Yeah, thank you, man. I appreciate that. And again, um, it was at the time, like I said earlier, it was it was more about me and trying to maybe fix something that I didn't know. I didn't really understand what was going on in my mind, but I knew I had to do something that would that would take me away from me. I don't know if that makes sense. No, makes perfect sense. Let's back up a little bit. Uh, where were you born? In the Bronx, New York City. Yeah. And did you end up growing up in the city? Yeah, I grew up in New York City in the Bronx. I spent, you know, I was there until I was 17. Um, that was in the 80s and 90s, right, right around, you know, the uh, the crack epidemic, heroin. Um, it was crazy, man. It was crazy. Yeah, I mean, that's the only thing, the only way I can describe it. I mean, growing up in New York City in the late 80s, early 90s, it was, well, throughout the 80s, man, it was crazy, man. Drugs, shootings, it was it was bananas. It was nuts. Big family, small family? Yeah, got a brother. He's uh, uh, who I love to death. Unfortunately, he suffers from uh, mental, mental illness, bipolar schizophrenia. He's in a mental facility. Um, uh, I love him to death. Uh, my sister, um, she's a teacher. New York, four kids, uh, married to uh, a lieutenant commander for NYPD, a very successful young lady, uh, double masters. You know, she's uh, she's awesome. Yeah, teacher. What kind of work did your parents do? My dad was a Vietnam veteran. Uh, as soon as he got, got back from Vietnam, he gave it a go to start his own business. I remember he used to repair TVs in the, in the basement of the house that we lived in. And then uh, he's, uh, he's a mailman. Letter carrier, man, for a long time. He retired out of the out of the postal service after 20, 27, 28 years. A long lineage of family in New York, or yeah, most of my family. Um, yeah, all my family, really. New York, New Jersey, that that part of town. Growing up as a kid, what kind of it took up your daily life? Um, you know what, honestly, man, I don't have any. Vi- well, I do have vivid memories, but I don't. I don't. I didn't like growing up in New York. You know, like I said, my brother has suffered from, from mental illness. You know, the onset was right about 17 or 18. I, you know, I, I did normal stuff, man. I, I, um, basketball, baseball, sponge ball, wiffle ball, uh, football in the streets, you know, from sewer to sewer, uh, you know, running along rooftops of these buildings in New York city, uh, riding the subways, you know, putting piecing together BMX bikes from scrap parts and things like that. Um, I do remember, though, the transition from, I was about maybe 13, 14 years old, and that's when drugs, because my neighborhood was pretty chill, but when drugs came in, when crack and heroin came in, man, it was a nightmare. So, you know, to answer your question, I I did the things that that most kids would do at that age, you know, about 12, 13, but, you know, from 14, from 13 to about 17, man, I was just trying not to get killed out there, to be honest with you. You know, the shootings were crazy, murders. Um, heroin addicts burning stolen cars for, on, on my street, man, it was nuts. So I, I think I, when that happened, I kind of, sh- I, I was frozen, right? Like I wasn't, I wasn't evolving. I wasn't doing the things that normal kids were doing. I was just trying not to get killed out there, you know? For people who have been to New York recently, um, they really don't know the, 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 the idea. And I'll, I won't even use the Bronx. I'll just use yeah. Times Square. And yeah. the way, you know, Broadway is completely shut down now. You go, yeah. you, it's a pedestrian mall. Yeah. Um, but 
the and and I say that only because I have a connection. I was born in Queens. Oh, right on. Uh, my dad grew up in Brooklyn, you know, but nice, man. my mom was from California. So when I was young, she wanted to come back here. So I didn't get yeah. to, to grow up there, but I've been back many times. And, and there is something that, that, you know, I, I love about the city, Yeah. but, but I have experienced it peripherally in that change. Yeah. And so for you to, to grow up when, we see the old music videos, the old TV shows, the old movies of what yeah. the Bronx was like yeah. in its worst. And oh. you were in the middle of it. Yeah, man. It was crazy. It was like, uh, you know, when you look at all those buildings in World War II that were bombed and it was just like rubble, brick. And, you know, I remember that, man. I remember that, you know, the Bronx looked like that. Um, it's a shame, man, because, you know, I, I, remember the, I remember some of the good times. And now that you know, if I watch a movie or I go visit, I just feel like, man, this this was a this was a really cool place, but there's so much trauma connected to that that right. I don't I don't I, re, I don't really enjoy going back. Really, if I do if I do go back, you know, I hang out with my mom and dad, see my sister, my nieces, and my nephew, but I'm not I'm not out there, man. You know, I'm just I don't enjoy it. Other than trying to keep your head down and not get shot, did you have any plans for yourself for adulthood? I had no idea when my when my brother got sick. It just it it it, uh, it brought my family to my to to its knees, and so I kind of um, and I've never shared this with my parents, but I kind of resented the fact that that happened to him, right? Because I was like, man, what about me? You know, um, I I had lost my way. I was always a pretty good student. Uh, my dad super smart. Mom is super hard super hardworking, super smart. Um, but I just wanted to get the hell out of there, man. I, I didn't have any plans. I don't know what the hell I was going to do. They, they got to a point where I wasn't, I wasn't, I was in school, but I wasn't in school. If you know what I mean? I, I really didn't care. You were just taking up a chair. Yeah, man. I was, I was, I was just lost. And honestly, it's at that age is when I started really thinking about, um, you know, like, why am I here? You know, what's my, what's the point? And even, even at 17, I'm like, I don't know what the hell I'm going to do. And, uh, my dad was like, you gotta, you gotta bounce, man. You gotta get out of here. And I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, he's like you're not going to go to college. We can't afford college. You, you know, your grades are horrible. Um, you, you got to figure something out, man. Cause you ain't sticking around here. And, uh, he said, let's take a walk to the recruiting office on the Grand Concourse in the Bronx and Fordham Road. And, um, you know, he introduced me to the Marine Corps recruiter and that was it. Was your dad in the Marine Corps in he Vietnam? Navy. He was in the Navy. Yeah. yeah. But was he pushing the Marine Corps or did you on your own? Cause I'm sure he probably walked into one of those typical recruiting office where all the branches were in yeah. one office. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly what it was, man. He pushed the Marine Corps. I don't know why he, he was like, you got to get your head out of your ass, you know, basically, excuse me, but um, he's, you're going to the Marine Corps, man, and you're going to get a technical, technical MOS, right? You're not going to, you're not going to be a grunt, you know? Um, he said, you're going to be, you're going to be a mechanic or something. And so I said, okay, whatever. As long as I get out of here, I'm cool. And, uh, took the ASVAB, went to maps. I was a helicopter mechanic for a long time there. And that was the first time where I felt like my life had purpose, man. It was, it was, it was awesome. The Marine Corps is phenomenal, man. It was great. Just real quick for your dad, obviously your dad was looking at your long-term goals, but was there a little bit of, were you starting to head down maybe a wrong path 
Yeah, yeah. I was drinking at 13, 14. I was getting hammered drunk. I was drinking Old English, 40 ounces mixed with pina colada mix. And, um, you know, some of the guys I knew were smoking crack already. There there was uh, uh, popping pills and smoking weed and, and, uh, you know, sniffing heroin, powdered heroin. You know, some of those kids I grew up with. Um, Some of those kids got killed. Some of those kids were... You know. So your dad was looking not only for your long-term future, but fixing the present and just kind of, you need to get out of this environment. Yeah. I think he had, he had hit a wall too, right? Cause he's looking at his son and he's like, man, this dude's going to get killed out here. And he's obviously just given up on, on any, you know, any effort into his education. So, and I don't know if a part of my dad felt like shit, like this is my son we're growing, we're, he, we're living in a, in the, in the hood, man. And, and I've exposed my son to this environment and, but I got to work. I remember my dad, no, no bullshit, man. He would get a voucher to get shoes, right? Cause he's a mailman. He's walking right. all the time. And, uh, swear to you, man, I remember watching him in the living room, put his socks on and then he would wrap his feet in plastic bags and then put his shoes on. And I'm like, what the hell? And he would do that shit because he would give my brother and I his voucher for shoes, but his shoes were in such bad shape that walking in the snow and the rain, he would have to wrap them in plastic so his feet wouldn't get wet. And um, I think at some point he must have, he must have been trying to reconcile with, I got one son who's in a mental facility. I got another son who's probably not going to make it past 18 or 19. I got to get him the hell out of here. And I think that was, that was a last resort for him. Well, and you mentioned before we started recording, we're both parents. Yeah. And life is completely different when you look at the world as a parent and what you need to give to your children. And to think that, you know, your dad was doing that. Your dad was, he took whatever available resources he had and gave it back to his family. Yeah. Of, and you know what, Paul, I mean, that's, that's what you're supposed to do. You know, and he's a great guy, uh, hardworking guy. Definitely think there's some mental health issues there for him as well in the form of maybe some depression. He's in Vietnam for a long time, man, you know. Um, But, yeah, I mean, that's, I'm really proud of my dad for doing that because he could have done the other thing Mm -hmm. and be like, I'm not going to deal with this shit. I'm out of here. Like the vast majority of my friends at the time, their dads were gone. You know, and uh, he's just a good loving man, good hardworking man. So you you went into the Marine Corps what year? 1992. I was 17. The day I graduated from high school, I was already on a bus going to MEPS. My dad was like, you're gone. What were you thinking for yourself at that point in time? Was it a single enlistment and then go find something else to do? Or were you kind of teetering on maybe even making it a career? Yeah, at the time, I think that was the first desert storm right around that time. And, and the first desert storm had been wrapping up. And honestly, I, I, I was like, I'll go, man. Like, I don't care. Like, I, I, I want to go there. It, it has to be better than where I'm, where I'm coming yeah. from. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm like, man, send me there. And so I didn't really know, man. Like, honestly, the, the recruiter didn't talk to me that much. I thought once you joined the Marine Corps, you're in it forever. You know, I didn't know anything. They didn't talk to me about enlistments. They didn't talk to me about EASs. They didn't talk to me about anything. I didn't benefits, nothing. They just said, man, you're going to go and uh, you're going to go to Paris Island, South Carolina. 
you going to go to boot camp? I didn't know what was going to happen after that. I didn't, I didn't care. I'm like, as long as I'm out of here, man, I'm, I'm good, you know? And that's one of the things I would say, good or bad, depending on your perspective. First responder community, they do the same thing, seems like the military, for, for the most part. I, I'm, I would imagine it's probably getting better today because kids are coming in the door more informed. But in, like in your situation, all the recruiters looking at is you want to get out of here. Yeah. All I got to promise you is there. Yeah. I don't have to promise you the future. I don't, I just yeah. need to get you out of here. Yeah. And they don't do that for us. They don't, when you're signing on the dotted line, they don't talk to you about the future. It's yeah. just today. Yeah. You know, the thing is that, um, for, for my, my dad did tell me, he, you know, he, this is a social safety net for a lot of kids in the inner city, the military, because you're going to get medical benefits, you're going to get dental, you're going to get a paycheck, you get, you know, three hots and a cot. Um, you, this is this is really an opportunity for you to, a launch pad for your life. Um, and and I think he knew that. He's like, this, this, this is going to be good, man. This is going to give my son an opportunity at life. And, and I wish that the, the U.S. military would be more present in the inner city uh, more present in schools in the inner city, right? Because I had zero hope, even at 17, I was already thinking about like suicide. Um, but it gave me, it gave me a chance at life. It gave me a chance at life and say what you want about the U S military. You know, I have, you know, some family members who, who don't think highly of our country and our government and the U S military, but they provide so much for inner city youth, man, in the form of hope, right? And, and, and structure and mentorship and leadership and, and an opportunity to get your education paid for and to develop interpersonal skills and, 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 and social skills. You know, it's, you're not going to get that anywhere else. Well, and, and you hit the nail on the head for a lot of people, the military provides an opportunity. Yeah. An opportunity that you probably would have never had if you'd stayed in the environment you're yeah. in. And yeah. it, and for the most part, it is the lower income portion of our societies. Yeah. 100% man. And, um, and I can speak to that cause I came from there and some people don't like to hear it, but it's the absolute truth. Um, it, it, it affords you an opportunity to do something that you probably would have never had access to. There's a trade off. Right. Yes. You're rolling the dice um, because you could not come back. And I have friends that didn't come back, but um, it, it, it's done amazing things for me, man. So you did how many years, years total? Just under eight. Just two under, enlistments? Yeah. Two enlistments. Yeah. In that second. Well, you came to your first and the end of your first enlistment. Yeah. Was it an easy decision to stay for the second? Oh, 100 percent. I loved it, man. I, I loved having structure in my life. I, you know, I would, someone taught me how to iron my own clothes, right? Someone taught me how to set an alarm clock, right? My dad wasn't waking me up. Um, it, I, I loved everything about it, man. I loved working. I was working on helicopters on Hueys and Cobras, right? 17 year old kid. I, I had never been to college, but the Marine Corps put me through, you know, aviation school in Memphis, Tennessee. And uh, I was a part of something, man. And I had a, an amazing group of people from every walk of life, you know, every demographic, right? Growing up in New York, in the Bronx at that time, it was black or Hispanic, right? Or Italian, but we never hung out with the Italian guys. 
And didn't uh, get over to Arthur Avenue very no. much. <laughs> yeah. How do you know about this, man? Dude, <laughs> just because I didn't grow up in New York doesn't mean yeah. I don't love New York. Yeah, man. So uh, no, man. I grew up in a, like a two block radius, man. I, I wouldn't go past a certain you know, area on my block. I wouldn't go, you know, to, to this Avenue or this street and, and, and God help you if you're out after eight o'clock at night, man, you know what I mean? It's, it's not happening. So, um, when I joined the Marine Corps, man, it was cool. I was hanging out with, cause I'm, I'm just going to keep it real with you, man. Growing up, we didn't get, we didn't, I didn't have black friends, man, because we black and Hispanic thing was like, it was a real thing back then. Why? So stupid, right? Like, you look back at it now, you're like, Jesus Christ, man, you're an idiot, you know, uh, like skin color matters, you know, you're hitting on something really important because, and we're obviously going to talk about your law enforcement career, but when you think about that and all the times that you've dealt with gangsters yeah, and, and their rivalries with the guy across the street or whatever, yeah. because he's black or Hispanic or whatever. Yeah. It's like, if you could just yank those guys out and throw them in the military or throw them in a completely different environment, you yeah. realize your skin color means nothing. It didn't. In the Marine Corps, it didn't matter, man. It honestly didn't matter. Now, some of that stuff would carry over, right? Because you have some kids that were knuckleheads before they joined the Marine Corps, and they're going to be knuckleheads in the Marine Corps, and they're going to be knuckleheads when they get out of the Marine Corps, you know? Um, but it, honestly, man, I, re, I, I was hanging out with guys from Paducah, Kentucky, man, white kids, and black kids from, from uh, you know, Savannah, Georgia, man. And it was the coolest thing in the world to, to be able to live amongst people from different walks of life and different backgrounds and different skin colors that talked a different way and dressed a different way. It was awesome, man. It was the best thing that could have happened to me. So at the end of your second enlistment, what yeah. made you get out? That's when I think right around like Kosovo, Bosnia was starting to kick up, but Bosnia, Bosnia. And uh, I already had done two pumps and I had a daughter at the time already. And I'm like, man, I, I hate leaving my daughter behind. I love the Marine Corps. I had uh, a put in for a B billet, uh, drill instructor duty. That's what I wanted to do. I love the creases in the uniform and I loved everything about a Marine Corps drill instructor and it was it was awesome and I knew that's what I wanted they do a horrible job of creating an image <laughs> <laughs> the Marine Corps needs to work on creating <laughs> that image These guys are sloppy huh they're yeah. terrible man who does their who does their like PR stuff man they're terrible um but there's biz there's got to be business schools that evaluate the Marine Corps on selling their image. Dude, you know, Simon Sinek talks a lot about, you know, his visit with the Marines, man. He talks very highly of the Marine Corps and their leadership capacity. And listen, they've been doing this shit for sorry. You're they, good. You're good. Been, excuse me. But they've been doing this for a long time, man. You know, over 200 years. You're going to get it right. You're going to fail a lot. But through those failures... You know, the, the, what's on the other end of it is something beautiful, man. And nobody does it like the Marine Corps. Well, I think the, the best, let's say, uh, I, I don't, how do I want to put this? When you talk to, or when you listen to somebody who's been in a different branch of the military and yeah. the way they talk positively or, yeah. you know, about the Marine Corps, 
there's something about their reputation, their history, and the way they ingrain that. It's like the day you walk in the door, here's your bag of history. And guess what? You're carrying this with you for the rest of your life. Yeah, you're absolutely right, man. And and I'm glad you brought that up because in boot camp, the, the receiving drill instructors, the first thing, one of the first things they talked about was that your skin color doesn't matter. Right. So immediately they're drilling into your head that you're part of this brotherhood and sisterhood that where, where, where what you look like doesn't mean a thing. It was really nice because for the first time in my life, it didn't matter that I was a Puerto Rican kid with, with really messed up English. Right. It didn't matter that the guy next to me was black, that the guy next to me was white. Didn't matter for the first time in my life. It didn't matter. And, and immediately I felt this connection with, with the Marine Corps, like, wow, if this is what it's like, man, this is where I want to be because nothing matters but your performance and how you treat people. And they just drilled it into your brain. Kindness, compassion, dignity, respect, loyalty, enthusiasm, you know, exercise good judgment, judgment. Um, you know, it's just it, everything about life that's right is what they were teaching you. You're human. We're fallible. We're going to fall off course. We're going to start drinking, right? We're going to start, you know, doing stupid things. Marines drink? No. <laughs> it's a rumor, man. It's a rumor. Uh, somebody even <laughs> said that they, they started in a bar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they did. Tun Tapper, man. Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Um, but yeah, I loved it. I loved it, Paul. It was great, man. So coming out, did you, where were you, when you discharged out, where were you at? I was at Camp Pendleton. No, um, I, I I went from Camp Pendleton to uh, El Toro. I worked search and rescue at El Toro for a little bit. And then that base got decommissioned. And then I went down to Miramar. So you base. were already on the West Coast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was back and forth from, from you know, I, I was on 31st Mew. Then I was in Okinawa. But I was back and forth from the Far East to to uh, to California. So bottom line is you got a taste of California life and didn't want to leave. You know what? It, it wasn't so much so that it was, it was that everything that I knew about life that was good was on Camp Pendleton, right? Everything that I knew about life that was pure and, and right with the world was on Camp Pendleton, man. My brothers and sisters were on there. So I had this really deep connection with, with the Marine base and I knew that I, I didn't want to be far from it. Even when I got out, man, and I was a cop already, I would go back there. Swear to God, dude, I, I would drive back down to Oceanside and try to, you know, weasel my way on base just so I can be in that energy. I would just the smells of like, you know, jet fuel, man, or like your camis or, you know, that stinky smell on, you know, your supplies and stuff, man. I, I was so connected to it that when I left it, I'm like, what am I doing, man? This, I just, I just walked away from something that was everything that I wanted to be. Now you mentioned that part of your reasoning for getting out after your second enlistment, you know, at a child. Yeah. Did you have a period where you legitimately regretted getting yeah. out of it? Even still to this day. Yeah. Even still to this day, man, I, I miss it so much because it was the first time where I felt like I belonged somewhere and that I was around people that really loved me and that, that cared about me, you know, uh, there's something to be said about a guy that carries you back to the barracks, you know, on his, on his shoulders. Cause you're so drunk, you can't walk. Right. And 
your brother's picking you up and, you know, and, and I say that, you know, there's a little bit of humor there, but, um, I love those guys, man. And I think about those guys now and I, and I still love those guys and I miss it so much. And I, anytime I see a, you know, helicopter flying military helicopter, I'm like, damn, man, I miss it. Or I see a Marine Corps billboard. I'm like, man, that's where I belong, man. You know, do you, do you consider go, uh, going into the reserves just to kind of keep that connection? I, you know what? I, I, I started looking into the Army National Guard about, you know, seven years ago. And they're like, you're an old man. <laughs> like, we don't want you, man. You're, you know, sick, lame, and lazy, you know. So I tried to give it another go, but they, yeah, I think I was too old at the time. So Coming out, what, so you were eight years in, so we're now talking early 2000s? Yeah, uh, late 99. So I was just under eight years because I, I had so much time. You know, I, I EAS'd. Um, right around, I would say, July, August, September, like October, maybe of 1999. What were you planning for yourself for that with that transition out? I knew that it had to be something where I was wearing a uniform. I knew that. And I knew it had to be something in service of other people. I needed that because that's where I found my value, right? I, outside of any of a paramilitary organization, I was, was going to be in bad shape, right? Taking a step backwards, though, and I didn't ask this previously, but growing up in the Bronx in the time that you did, as bad as the times were, yeah, did you have a good impression of cops? No, I remember I, I hated cops, but but the thing is, a lot of my family members were cops. I remember a cop using his baton and hitting me in the stomach so hard, man. And I remember cops, you know, slapping my brother around. Um, I, I just, it, it was, it wasn't cool. It was, but, but again, I mean, I'm in that environment, right? I'm doing stuff that I shouldn't be doing. I'm acting like a little knucklehead, man. I'm, I'm just being a bad kid. Um, at the time the streets had taken over and now there was this, there was a hate, hate relationship with cops, man. We saw them as an occupying force. They just came in and all of them were, were, were white guys, you know, um, at the time, like Irish guys, you know what I mean? And so no, I hated cops. But I wanted to be one because I wanted to be a good one, you know? And, uh, and so, yeah, I guess to answer your question, I, I knew that I wanted to be in service and being a police officer was something that I could just get right into. You know? So there wasn't, it wasn't something you struggled with making that decision. It was a, I don't want to say easy, but y you could make that transition and still remain in uniform and yeah. not carry that old baggage with you, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. And when I went to go take the test at Dodger stadium, I remember taking a test over there. I was in line, the bunch of Marines in line, bunch of Marines at the time. And I'm like, Oh, this is cool, man. These guys are sharp man. you know, pressed and ties and all that and dumb eating crayons in line, but they were sharp. <laughs> yeah. You didn't, you didn't pick an agency that, that prides itself on its yeah. Uh, presentation and its image. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it's interesting. Uh, the Marine Corps, LAPD, or both? Well, I'm talking about going from the Marine Corps. When I say you, you tested with LAPD, yeah. I was referring to, because I'll, I'll tell anybody, yeah. LAPD uniform, yeah. you know, they take it seriously. Oh, yeah, man. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And you know what's, what's interesting is um, I know that a big piece of the Marine Corps' transition, I mean, excuse me, the LAPD's transition into that uniform was 
and I'm going to have to fact check here, but there was, there was rumors and talks about the Marine Corps having a huge influence on the LAPD uniform and a huge influence on the LAPD organizational structure, right? Because LAPD was in, was in dire straits, I think right before Chief Parker. And um, you had a jarhead come in and kind of turn things around. And so the, the, the LAPD history and the Marine Corps history are intertwined right around Chief Parker, before Chief Parker time. You know, so it's evident too. Was LAPD the only agency you looked at? I looked at NYPD, um, but I knew I, I didn't want to go back to New York, right? And, and it's going to rub, you know, it's going to come out <laughs> wrong. But I, I looked at the uniform, man. I'm like, I'm, I'm, putting, I'm wearing that uniform, man. I'm wearing that uniform, you know. Whatever I got to do, man, I'm putting that uniform on. And I don't have to work in the snow. Yeah, and I don't have to work in the <laughs> snow, man. And deal with, you know, deal with, you know mile high projects and things like that. But I, I didn't want to go back to New York, man. But out here on the West coast, it was LAPD was the only That's one you it. looked at. That's it, man. Put all your eggs in one basket. That's it. And so what year did you come on board with LAPD? Uh, late 99, 2000. Right. So I had to push my Academy day cause I was still, I was still on terminal leave from the Marine Corps. And I was like, Oh man, I don't want to get caught up in doing something wrong. You know, I'm just going to ride this out at my terminal. Let me EAS officially, and then I'll, I'll, I'll get into the academy. Coming on board from the Marine Corps to LAPD, was there any struggle with that transition, or was it a fairly easy transition to go into public sector or public safety? It was tough. It was tough because I didn't know how to speak the civilian language. You know, and, and coming from the Marine Corps, man, it was, and I was still pretty young, um, I was expecting the LAPD to be that regimented and I was expecting everybody in my academy class to be that focused linearly, right? Like this is the mission. This is what we do. Boom. That's it. But when I joined the academy, I was like, oh man, this isn't, this isn't really what I thought it was going to be still military type structure, but you got some people here, man, that shouldn't be here, you know, and, and they, they phased them out throughout the academy. Um, but it was it wasn't easy, man. I was it was an adjustment period there. Now I know that's normal now, right? But in the moment, I'm like, oh, it's kind of weird. But um, it it was all in all, it was okay. Um, but it was tough. Yeah, it was tough. And you ended up doing a because you recently retired, so you ended up doing how many years? Uh, over 21 years. And yeah. was that your goal? Or that that was your plan when you went in? Were you thinking I'm riding this out to retirement? Dude, I was gonna do dirty. When I when I joined the LAPD, as soon as I hated probation. Because uh, I'd love to be able to say nobody else. Oh, <laughs> man. <laughs> right. Right. Like I hated probation, man. But I hated probation because, you know, I had I had training officers that, that were not cool, man. I had training officers that were just like, man, whatever. You know, um, I had a hard time on probation, but I got through it. You just muscle through. And then I, when I was done with probation, you know, I had a kick assignment. They sent me to like traffic or something. Uh, and it was pretty chill. But at that, but I was already hooked because I did probation in South Central, man. I did probation at 77. And it was, it was rocking, man. It was rocking back then, like 99s and 2000s. It was, it was really, really busy. And, and I was already hooked on the adrenaline. I was already hooked on the shootings and the, and the foot pursuits and the vehicle pursuits and the crashes and the fires and the, cops getting shot at and crime scenes. I was already, I was already in it, man. Accelerated. Cause it was, it was popping back then at 77 to Southeast and Newton. It was, it was, it was cracking good. So I want to kind of jump around a little bit. 
when we first started talking, you mentioned doing the bike ride a lot for yourself because you felt yourself spiraling in a, in a bad hole. Yeah. How were you experiencing any of that while you were in the Marine Corps or did it start coming to, to where you were noticing it once you became a cop? Once I became a cop. And how yeah. soon into the career did you start noticing it? Um, almost immediately. I remember still being on probation and I was in an area of, of LA and I, that was, it was my first shooting that I responded to. And it was two guys in a, in a Chevy, I think it was a, like one of those Astro vans or GMC safaris, something like that. And, um, just, it was a shooting. I mean, it was, I remember the night was kind of, kind of foggy or like that, that mist, that Marine layer kind of, um, and just two dead bodies in a, in a minivan doors, the side doors were open and dudes are just hanging out. I'm like, Oh man, that's real. Like this is real. Like this is legitimately happening. And I'm a couple weeks into probation. There's people getting murdered out here in the United States, in Los Angeles, on public streets that people travel every day, a few miles away from USC. This is really happening. People are getting gunned down because I'm going to be honest with you. I didn't, I didn't know that it was going to be that real. And then it hit me like, boom, oh, cow. Like, wow, man. Did you know anybody? Uh, I, I know you, you mentioned you had family back east who were cops. But when you were getting close to becoming a cop yourself, did you have anybody that you could lean on who was already on the job? No. Especially man. out here in California? No, nah, nobody. I mean, my cousin was a cop out there in New York, man. He went to jail. So you, you really, even though you did spend eight years in Marine Corps, you came into law enforcement blind yeah bright-eyed and bushy-tailed right with through rose-colored glasses man i thought i was going to be like on the on tv and in the movies man like i knew it was going to be kind of kind of crazy but not like this not like this and anybody who tells you that they knew it was gonna be that crazy they're, they're they're lying they're lying so how did you start dealing with it i drank a lot man i drank a lot i i i started drinking about two years into the job, like heavily drinking. Um, and I hid it from a lot of people, man. Not everybody knew that I was drinking the way I was drinking. And I would, I would get to work early. I would work out like crazy running, you know, lifting weights or whatever. Um, I would hit it super hard on my shift. I wanted to be the guy chasing guns all the time. And then at the end of the shift, man, the minute the vest came off, like, you know, the Velcro, like, I'm like, damn, I want a beer so bad. I go right to the liquor store, 76 and Broadway, just get a beer. And yeah, yeah, that was it, man. Well, for, well, was there ever a point in that 21 years where you were, I can't do this anymore? That's a great question, man. And there's so many different ways to answer the question. It had become so much a part of me that that, that was, I would never ask myself. Uh, well, I never told myself I can't do this anymore because to, to think that I couldn't do this anymore would mean that, that life would just be over, right? Like what the hell else am I going to do? This is so intertwined into my identity, right? That and I never asked myself, can you, can you continue to do this? It was like, no, man, this is it. Like I'm, I'm in this for 30 years and whatever I got to do to medicate, whatever I got to do to get through it, I'm going to do it. You know what I mean? 
Uh, you want me to come in early? I'm coming in early. You want me to stay late? I'm coming in late. You want me to sleep in my car in the parking lot right after my shift for two hours so I can make court, sit in court till 4 p.m., and then come back and work again until maybe 2 in the morning to do it again the next day, I'm good. I'm so good with that. As long as I'm getting overtime and I'm and, and as long as I can drink a little bit, man, I'm I'm solid. I'm good. What was your family life like? Terrible. Now I know you mentioned a previous wife. Your current wife now, how long have you been married? Uh can we edit this? Yeah. Because I'm gonna get it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> then we're not editing it. <laughs> and I'm gonna make sure I remind oh, her. Oh man, oh, I, I know it was October. Give, give me a ballpark. Uh, about five years. Okay. Yeah. Um, were, were you at your worst at that point or were you starting to come out of it at that point? No, that was, it was bad, bro. It was bad. Like a year before, man, a year before and and, and a few months into after meeting my wife, bro, it was bad. It was really bad. What was her response to what she was seeing? Um, I, I would I would think that she I would say she was confused, right? But 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 the depression and the anxiety and and the thoughts of suicide and things like that, man, I hit it really well because you you become a master at it, right? You, you you're able to function well. We think we can function. Yeah, you're you're able to get the job done. My work was declining, man. It was I, I was still hitting it hard in the street. Like honestly, with a guy that has 17 years on the job, I was still chasing guns out there. In, with regularity everybody knew it and they're like what are you doing man you're an idiot and i'm like this is all i know how to do and they're like you're gonna get killed out here like you're legit i have been in two shootings already they're like you're literally you're gonna get killed out here and i'm like who cares I would, that's how messed up my brain was you know what i mean um but to answer your question i i don't know i don't know what she was thinking man i don't even talk to her about it you know that's how messed up it was at the time or or do you still keep a lot of secrets now no, we talk about it openly now. The mental health thing is 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 really important, right? The, the mental health discussions and, um, you know, even for her, she's she's confused. I mean, there are times where she's like, "Man, I, you got to get out of your own head." Not so much now, but before, like this depression is crazy. Like, cause I would wake up and be like, "Dude, I just I don't want to live anymore." And I th- and I think I know that I that I knew that my body couldn't handle the overtime and the work and the jumping out of the car, the getting back in the car. Like I was starting to get the aches and the pains. And I'm like, I'm in denial because I see these young cops and they're doing it. And I'm like, nah, you're not going to outwork me. There's no way. But I physically couldn't do it. And mentally I was just so tired. And I think that's, that's what really, I mean, you know, the shootings and the murders and the rapes, the robberies, the kidnaps, you know, the crime scenes and, and, and all that stuff. Yeah, dude, that takes a toll. It takes a toll on you. But nothing hurts more than having to reconcile with the fact that you're done, man. You're going to go out to pasture. And that's what hurt the most because I just couldn't keep up. You know, I, I wanted to, but physically I couldn't do it. I couldn't hit the 15, 16, 17 hour shifts anymore. And as I said earlier, my identity was so tied up in that and being a great cop, right? Officer of the year, gang officer of the year, you know, I'm like, it's slipping away, man. Everything that I'm, that I know that I'm good at is slipping away and there's nothing I can do to get it back. 
And that for me, because you hear about it, man, guys that get out to Marine Corps and guys to get out and, you know, retire from the job, you know, these guys kill themselves. Well, I'm going to ask an obvious question. Was your social circle nothing but other cops? Dude, I didn't even, I, I hung out with maybe one or two cops. It, I, I didn't hang out with anybody. I was, in the, and that's bad. Like I didn't hang out with anybody is when I was off duty, I was either riding my bike or I was running or I was going for walks alone, alone, man. Like even my daughter was like, what in the world is wrong with this guy? But I didn't want to be around noise. I didn't want to be around sirens and helicopters and honking horns and loud bangs. And I didn't want any of that nonsense, man. Where I lived, I lived on the foothill in, in the bottom of a canyon, in the bottom of a mountain, like near a canyon. And I just wanted to be around trees and water, man. Just anything outside of that, get the hell away from me. And I would go down there and I would drink, you know? Because when I didn't drink, I, I was seeing that shit again. I was seeing that stuff again, like the, the crime scenes and very vivid pictures of like guys dead, covered in blood, and then there's ants crawling all over them. You know, that's something I'll never forget, like the the ants crawling all over bodies and stuff like that. And, you know, people, you know, little girls dead on the street and people taking their shoes, man. Like, you know, having a 14, 15 year old girl, girl dead on the sidewalk. And as I'm getting there, people are taking her jewelry off of her. Like what? Like, it was just crazy. And so it's just a little bit of everything, man. But the biggest piece, Paul, was was uh, it's over, man. You can't do this anymore physically. You can't hang with the young guys. And that, so, that hurt pretty bad. So as much as you knew that, you know, using a car analogy, you were running at Redline your entire career. And yeah. you st- you take a step back. You Anybody telling you, if I run my car at Redline, yeah. it's going gonna, it's gonna to yeah. die. Yeah. You're doing that to yourself. Yeah. But at the same token, you're, you are fighting, this is my identity, so I can't give it up. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 And, and, and a lot of men do that. A lot of men do that. Yeah. And, 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 you know, I would imagine that some women do that too, but at the time you just don't know it. And there are cops that are going to hear this and they go, man, that's bullshit. Nah, dude, I'm telling you, I know guys that were running at red line for years. And you look at them these guys look like they're 80 years old. They're in their forties, fifties or guys that are boozing all the time right? I'm good. I'm fine. Nah, dude, you're not. And, and at the time I thought I was, this is what life is, you know, but it's not, man. It's, it's a trip. Do you ever have somebody in your ear telling you, Hey, you need to go talk to somebody? Mm, no, swear to God, dude. No, because that's the culture, man. That, it's like, that, you just don't be a baby. Just it's kind it. of a loaded question. And, yeah, and I yeah. think that we, in the first responder community, and even in the military side, we need to get better about it. And I think it's changing. But I, I yeah. you know, for somebody who's been in the game for 20 plus years, yeah. you know what it's like to come up through the yeah. that generational thing of, hey, yeah. just put your head down and go and do your job. Yeah, you're right, dude. It, awareness is changing. I, I would ask... And I, I know that this is correlated to, 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 the, to the men and women that were in combat, right? The, the probably, and I'm not, I'm not an expert, so I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to claim to be, and I'm probably wrong here. But of course, there's a correlation with the number of suicides as it relates to those men and women that were involved in active combat, right? 
or had exposure to chronic trauma in the form of bodies, shootings, or anything outside of what human beings should be exposed to for any length of time, is there will be adverse effects, right? The human mind is a beautiful thing, but it's a very vulnerable organ, right? Um, and, and, and layered is, is what, what makes it more difficult, to your point, is it's the culture, man. The culture doesn't allow for anything other than anger or testosterone, right? Like, suck it up, man. What's wrong with you? This dude's a baby. Or like, so it's getting better, the awareness piece. There's still a human piece to it. Mm-hmm. And there's still the very cultural man piece of it um, that doesn't allow for uh, very, very um, open talks that allow you to be very vulnerable in those moments where you really need somebody, you know. Wouldn't you say, though, that LAPD is probably one of the few agency that's, agencies that's really on the forefront of that in-house yeah. available counseling yeah. and, and really recognizing the need, hey, just go talk to somebody? Yeah, absolutely. Hands down, and I, I, I wasn't a cop in San Diego, Pomona, deputy sheriff. I wasn't, I can't speak to that. But what I can tell you is that LAPD, at any given moment, you, you make a phone call, somebody's going to answer that call. Somebody's going to answer, right? Uh, it got a little bit more difficult during the COVID time, right? You weren't doing the in-person stuff. But at any given moment, somebody's going to answer the phone. But, but that's the only safe place, man, is when you're in that office. When you get back to your division back in the police car, you can't, you, you just, you just can't talk about that stuff, you know, cause cops are, well, callous, mm-hmm. right? Hey man, you're going to sit here and freaking whine and cry, but there's a, there's a lady whose daughter's missing and she hasn't seen her in four days. And you and I both know that somebody put her through a metal recycling bin. Right. And, and, and at some point we're going to have to tell her. So I don't want to hear your sob story, man. You know, or, or, hey, this guy is raping his 11-year-old daughter, and you want to sit here next to me and complain about the fact that you're sad? You got nothing to be sad about, man. You got people living in freaking tents, you know? But I, what I say to that is what we need to be better is that's exactly what we need to be talking about. Because the problem is the general public doesn't realize what you and I had to see through our entire career. Right. But even worse is, so you go to that shooting of at walk and don't walk. Yeah. But you're going to keep going through that same intersection for the rest of your career. And you're going to remember that fight you were in, that kid that died yeah. in that intersection. That intersection is a constant reminder. Yeah. And to just think that you can shut it off and go, oh, I don't need to talk about it. Yeah. You know, what, what was a great point, so, but what really helped me was, you know, my my level of self-awareness has changed, right? My level of consciousness has changed. Uh, understanding what mental health issues are, uh, understanding that this is, this is something that you can, you can intervene with. On, you know, I, I can intervene with myself. Here's the thing, though, man. What's the difference between a, a police officer in a police car dealing with it for 12 hours a day? And we, you and I both know that it extends beyond your shift, Right. But the kid living in Watts or South Central or in the South Bronx who's seeing that shit all day, every day, coming back home, gunshots, you know, behind his house or his apartment, dope dealers across the street, gang members beating you up on your way to school. Like, 
it's, and then how does that kid get help? There's no, there's not a lot of resources out there, brother. There's, there's not, you know that. I agree. Know, for, for these kids. And so back to what we were talking about, having the capacity or just a heart to be able to talk to Paul about what he's feeling. It, I don't think it, I don't think, I don't think we'll ever get there because the, the cop mentality is, dude, just, just suck it up, bro. You got people out here dealing with some real issues. Right. I do think we can get there, though, if people like yourself mm-hmm. tell your story of, I started experiencing it while I was on probation. And yeah. what I did was I tried to hide it under alcohol. And I yeah. tried to hide it by not telling my family to where it destroyed my family life. Yeah. If we talk about it enough, hopefully somebody listening today who's maybe dealing with it. Yeah. We're not telling you. To, you don't need to, to make a 180 degree turn on a dime, but just think about going to talk to somebody, you know, start yeah. getting it out. And, and I think, you know, it's like any running, for example, yeah. people come up to you and go, man, how do I run six miles? Go run a half mile. Yeah. And then when you can run a half mile, run a mile. Yeah. You don't need to do it all in one step. Yeah. Take those steps, but yeah. start making progress. Yeah. yeah. And so I think we can. Yeah. But it's going to take a lot of effort. It's going to take a lot of effort, I honestly believe, from administration down to yeah. push that way of thinking from yeah. day one. Yeah. Police executives are going to do what they have to do to check that box, right? They're going to they're gonna build out infrastructure, supportive infrastructure, peer support, peer counseling, access to mental health professionals, doctors, clinicians, what have you. They know that they have to do that. Right. That has now become a check the box thing for most agencies. Um, but but again, to your point, how do you get how do you get the people in uniform to be OK with going? Right. That, that's the question, because there's a lot of bravado tied to um, the not wanting to go get help. Right. And I'll, I'll throw this caveat in it. There are a lot of old timers who will sit here and bemoan millennials but i'll tell you what millennials are in touch with how they feel yeah and they are going to be running our police departments in 20 years yeah well yeah and so hopefully what they bring from the bottom up is that culture of it's okay to be in Mm -hmm. touch with how you feel can i ask you a question if you don't mind sure I so, like the idea of it being yeah. more, you know, yeah, a yeah, conversation yeah. back and forth. So the, the, the composition, right? If you look at a, let's just say you look at a cop, man or woman, right? And, and, and you look at a cop, not as a human being, but as, let's just say like a, a layer of bricks. What, what comprises, what embodies a cop, right? What type of mentality do you have to have? What type of grit do you have to have? to be the cop that's on the street all the time, working in the projects, man, working, working in, in bad neighborhoods, right? You know, it's, it's, it takes a special person, man. You, and you can't teach that stuff, to be quite honest with you. You can't teach bravery. You can't teach courage. But, but what comes with that, Paul, right? What comes with the person who's willing to stand in, in, in the line of fire is is I believe that there's also this lack of reconciling with being vulnerable, right? So much of who you want to be and who you are 
is tied to the knight in shining armor, right? Riding in on a horse or, you know, the person who is, is draped in, a, in, a, in an American flag or the person who is, you know, walking a kid to school. Like that's, that's who I want to be. And because I, I am that, there's a brick, there's a wall there that doesn't let me be vulnerable, mm-hmm. right? And I don't know if that makes sense. It's, it, what makes me a good street cop is, is also stopping me from getting the help that I need to get. I, will, I would support or I will support everything you said. It is completely 100% true. There is a different type of person mm-hmm. that is called to be a first responder. There's, there's no way around it. You, yeah. you need that person who can turn off when the shit is hitting the fan yeah. and get the job done. Yeah. What I would say to that, though, is what is more important to our society? Do we want these non-feeling, non-compassionate robots mm-hmm. work in the street And then we, and I say the collective we, Mm -hmm. we don't care about them when they go home. We don't care what they live in when they're home, Mm -hmm. at the bottom of a bottle, away from their families because all they want to do is be alone. Yeah. Insulating themselves with only those other people who reinforce that. Or could we make better steps towards... You need to be strong. You need to be able to turn it on when it's hitting the fan. Yeah. But you also need to be able to turn it off. Yeah. And make make us feel it's okay to say, man, I saw that little kid was dead. That hurts. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with admitting that it hurts. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with admitting that it affects you. Yeah. Because the one thing that I would say, as much as I want a police officer to be strong and courageous and, and willing to step up. Yeah. I want them to never lose compassion. I'm with you, man. 100% beautifully stated. Um, and I would imagine that the vast, that, that uh, most people feel the way you do. It's inevitable. Inevitably though, you're going to go through a phase where you lose it all because you, you just become a machine. Mm-hmm. Right. And only as you raise your level of awareness in terms of, you know, being able to understand what you're feeling, can you transition back to someone who's compassionate again, right? Guarded at sometimes, right? But compassionate again. That's maturity. That, that, that comes in time. Um, unfortunately, though, for some people, before they're able to evolve and maybe break through the threshold of, of, of getting that compassion again, they're, they're so locked into the depression and the anxiety and the alcohol and, 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 and the uh, self-medication that they end up taking their lives, right? I, I guess the broader question and, and, and the better question is, how do we know at what stage we should, we should provide, we should engage in intervention, right? Like, how does Paul know that guy, that girl right there, I got I to do something, Right. Cause we mask it. Right. You, you, for the most part, I mean, you wouldn't know, like, unless I told you, Paul, you wouldn't know. Agreed. 100%. You know, it goes back to what you were talking about and we've all been there. The day you start in that black and white with your training officer, we both had training officers who were old salts. Yeah. Okay. And they basically, uh, I'll be straight up honest. They probably, for the most part, Taught you that everybody out there is a piece of shit. <laughs> yeah, dude. 
Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Now, yeah. do I believe that that people change? Of course I do. If yeah. you look at the overall health and wellness phys- from a physical fitness standpoint yeah. today, 2022, you're yeah. a year, two years removed from the job? Yeah. Yeah. There's, I would will be willing to bet there's much more, a, a bigger percentage of a police force that is physically fit and takes care of themselves compared to 20 years ago when you started. Mm-hmm. How many people do you know that still smoke cigarettes on a regular basis? I don't know any. Okay. And my training officer used to smoke in the car. So what I'm saying is culturally, yeah. we've changed over the last 20 years. You don't see people smoking anymore. Uh, uh, as the way it used to be like yeah. when we were kids growing up. Yeah. It doesn't happen overnight, but it happens. And yeah. if we just, st- you know, I, yeah. I'll use the analogy of getting a locomotive going. Yeah. You know, of course, you, you, we've all seen that movie where when it's starting up, man, those wheels slip a couple times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But once it gets going, it has momentum. Yeah. We just have to keep it going and build that momentum. Yeah. The day you're starting out in a patrol car, what what if it was the flip side and your 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 uh, training officer is like, how do you feel after dealing with that? Yeah, that'd be great. I mean, and you know, I tried to make it a point to do that when I when I was a training officer. My my P ones, my train my trainees, they didn't know I was still boozing, right, and being stupid. Um, but I would always tell them, hey man, it's cool, man. If you if if you're feeling a, a certain kind of way, it's it's okay. Yeah, no big deal. Just something small yeah. like that, because what's the ripple effect that you had? in that environment because you told that to one trainee yeah. but then they carry that forward and how many other people yeah. are they touching as opposed to if you hadn't done that yeah you know it's you know what's interesting man is that i sometimes i see cops that i worked with before because i still live i i live a stone's throw away from watts in california man here here in la county you know um so I, I ran into some of the guys that I used to work with and they'll tell me, man, it was a good time working with you, man. You were, you were a bit nuts, but it was a good time. And you just, it was, it was good to be in a car with you. Um, but again, they didn't know what the hell I was dealing with. I think you're right. I think if, if more training officers were like, it's cool, man, like no big deal. You need to take a break. You need to maybe hang out at the station for an hour. No big deal. Because the days I think of, of the police work that you and I are used to, those days are over. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I'm glad. And I'm glad. I'm glad. That, you know, the evolution of LAP and other agencies is going in the right direction, man. You know, and, and I think some cops, they say, oh, you can't do anything. The DA's office isn't filing this. Or, you know, Gascon is doing this. Or, man, whatever. Just come in, do your job, and punch out. That's it. You know? Because uh, that's all you can do right now. Always remember that there's going to be a minority that's the most vocal, but it's the majority that's silent. And those are the ones we're, we're working for. Yeah. And if we, if the, and I, I, I'm going to put myself in that category. If the good ones walk away just because they're tired of listening to the noise from the minority. Yeah. You're giving up on the people who really need you, which is that silent majority. Yeah. Now, if your heart is no longer in the job, if this is truly what you don't want to do, then please Go find something, and I'm not saying this sarcastically, you need to think about yourself first. You need yeah. to think about your long-term health, the health of your family. And if this job is destroying you from the inside out, yeah, legitimately walk away from it. Yeah. But if you're just looking to walk away just because of the noise that's going on right now, yeah. you're giving up on the people who really need you. Yeah, and, and you know what? I, that's, that's what I did. 
it was a little bit of both. It was a noise and it was like, dude, I, I would come to work and I would sit on the bench in the locker room. I remember one time I sat there for two and a half hours. I'm like, the last thing in the world I want to do is put this uniform on. I'm, I'm so done, man. Like I'm, I'm done. It's over. Like I, I would go get lunch and I just sit there just so pissed at the world that I couldn't do police work the way I wanted to because my body was broken. My body was done. I couldn't do it anymore, man. It hurt to put my belt on, man. I was like, I was a mess. And I did it to myself, you know? Um, but mentally, I was in worse shape. I, I couldn't do it anymore, man. I just could not. Now, you, you said previously that you had a change in how you looked at your mental health. What Was there a single event or an incident that, that caused that change? Or what was... What allowed you to kind of pull yourself out of it? Um, right before I retired, there was, there was an officer that had killed himself. And that's when I really started thinking, like, man, this is, this is legit. This could happen. And I had, I had been thinking about suicide for a long time. And I knew that being in a uniform is not where I should be if I was thinking about suicide with greater frequency. Um, and if I was medicating with greater frequency, you know, in a uniform is not, not where I deserved to be, right? Because the uniform is, and the badge, it's like, man, don't, don't tarnish it. You know, you can't do that. The guys that trained me would be pissed, right? They, and, and I don't want to say their names, but there were guys that, that did and still do amazing police work, and they'd be pissed. And that, that was it for me. Like, I knew that, the, the, the road that I was going down with depression, um, I couldn't be in a uniform anymore. Because I didn't deserve to be in a uniform anymore. Other than retiring, have you done anything for yourself in your mental health? Have you actually sought out help? Are you talking to anybody? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I do, man. Did did that come after your retirement or be, while you were still on the job? It was while well, I was still on the job, but but it's like... You know, going to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting at a bar, <laughs> right? Right. You know, you're getting help from LAPD's behavioral science, but you're still in it, man. And I'm, and I'm like, I'm not going to get better. I'm going to end up, I'm going to end up killing myself. Like I, I, it, it got there. I'm like, I'm, I'm out. I'm not doing this anymore, man. This is crazy. And you know, it's like, I never told that to, well, maybe, maybe one or two good, my, my good buddies on the job, but people that are going to hear this, if they know me, they're going to be like, oh, what the hell? Like, dude, are you kidding me? And, um, but that's where I was at. You know, it is what it is. It continues to be what it is. I'll get through it. Uh, I read a lot more. Uh, I listen to people like Jocko Willink a lot. Uh, people like, you know, David Goggins a lot. And I get it, man. These are the anomalies, right? Some people say these guys are over the top. Um, I listen to Jordan Peterson a lot clinical psychologist that that dude is an absolute machine when it comes to unpacking the human mind and how the human mind works. I still have my bouts of depression, right? I'm, I'm, I'm in the executive world now. I love what I do. I have an amazing team, but when there's pressure on the job, I, I see myself going back to that very dark place and I'm like, ah, uh -uh. get your running shoes on and get, go hit the bricks, right? Get that workout in. You need that workout. Uh, people call me who are having a bad time, Paul, and I hate to admit this, but I don't answer, man. If you're depressed, dude, I'm not talking to you right now. 
I'm sorry, but I gotta, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta do something for me right now because I'm in a very bad place. I don't, I don't think that you should feel wrong for that. And I'll use, I love using analogies. If you were on an airplane right now mm-hmm. and the thing lost cabin pressure, what's the first thing they tell you about the air masks? Put your mask on first. Take care of yourself first because you're not yeah. good to anybody else yeah. if you're not. So I, I understand where you're, where you're coming from. Yeah. You're at that point right now where I'm still working on fixing myself. Yeah. And I'm sorry, if I take on your baggage, it's just going to cause me to go backwards. Yeah, yeah. And you know, some people hearing this may be like, oh man, that guy's going through that stuff right now. Oh, he's probably weird or whatever. Do listen. It's, it's a constant battle, right? But, but I'm, I'm on the winning side right now. And, and I genuinely believe it's because, you know, I'm not seeing the, the killings and the shootings and the pressure and this and that, you know, all the time. There's different pressure outside of this executive world, right? Different pressure. Um, but it's manageable, right? I know nobody's trying to kill me. Um, or, you know, you, you kind of, you make these things up in your mind, right? Like it's no, nobody's trying to kill you, man. Like you're, you're on the 405 driving home, like relax. But well, you're not driving. You're, yeah. <laughs> you're going forward two inches and then sitting. Yeah, for yeah, minutes. yeah, yeah, yeah. Cause you go four or five miles an hour, but you know what I mean, right? Like it's always in the back of your head and, and I'm starting to disengage a little bit more like, oh man, this is cool. It's good. It feels good, man. It feels really good. Let's talk, let's change it to, uh, I don't want to say that we haven't been talking positively. So when you were getting ready to, to, to punch out, yeah. what was your, give me your process. Were you starting to look at work or did uh, you just kind of figure, you know, let me get out and then see what's out there. I had worked off duty quite a bit. I had made some pretty good relationships and I knew that I had something on the way out. I knew that. I knew that a few months before I, I pulled the trigger. Um, I, I had not, I had not limited myself to just like the cop stuff, right? I was doing different things. And so it, it set me up for, for what's on the outside. The darkest days of my life though, Paul, right? were in that transition, even though I, I had it set up, even though I had planned like, Hey, this is what I'm going to do when I get out that it was tough, dude. Cause what, what I talked about earlier was leaving your identity behind, right? Just boxed it all up there it is you know it was tough man it was tough but yeah i did some planning and and it was it was a pretty it was it was a smooth transition in terms of you know having a job when i got out now you're you've got a unique experience you've gone from military to law enforcement so you've already seen the culture change there yeah now you've gone from law enforcement to the private sector right what was that transition like and and for somebody looking to make their transition what what advice can you give them uh, it was brutal. And I talked to guys that are in that transition now and they're having a hard time, a really hard time. And even some, you know, some of my former colleagues that, that are in transition are having a hard time because they're so tied to that as, as that's who I am. The badge is me, right? The badge is me. The, the carrying a gun off duty, that's me, right? The blue line t-shirts, that's me, you know? The Oakleys, that's me. Everything about that life is so connected to your identity that when you go, I'm done, well, who are you now? Who are you now? And my, not that anyone needs advice, but my, I would recommend that you start thinking about that a couple of years before you retire. Start disconnecting, right? Start taking those vacations and that time off. If you're working a 312 or 410, work a 312 and a 410. Don't, 
don't work the off-duty shift at you know MTA. You know, don't don't sit there for you know two, three, four hours overtime at the end of your shift. Start weaning, start weaning off. You know, a couple of years before you transition out, man, because it, it's it's really helpful if you do that. Start start reinventing yourself. So when you get out, you're like, dude, I listen. I I interviewed a guy who did 31 years w- 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 on on the job, and he came to me because I'm hiring some people right now, and uh, I said, what you know. Why? Why do you want to do this? Why do you Why do you want to work after thirty one years? I I just don't know who I am. I just don't know who I am. I got to do something, man. And I could see in his eyes, man. And I knew that dude. And I could see in his eyes, he's just he's just like, I don't even know who I am anymore, man. I'm like, you're young, like you got your whole life ahead of you. But I could tell that that was a guy that his whole life was being a cop, you know. And he didn't, he didn't prepare for when he was done, you know, and he's hurting right now. I would almost add to, and I I do agree that you need to start planning for that transition. And one of the things is to re reinvent your identity. I would almost suggest you should be doing that from day one. Yeah. I, I use, I always tell people this, I go, you know, you made the, you made the comment about the blue line shirt, the, you know, carrying the gun off duty. Think about your friends. Who's a plumber. Think about your friends. Who's a auto mechanic other than their dirty nails. Yeah. Think about your friend. Who's a doctor. Yeah. When they're not working, that doctor's not walking around with a stethoscope around his neck. Yeah. You know, when that plumber's not working, he's not walking around with a monkey wrench yeah. looking like, Hey, can I fix a pipe? Yeah. 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 You know, I, I get it's a subtle balance. Yeah. And, and yeah. We, we've had some incidences recently where, yes, people carrying off duty have helped save an incident. Mm-hmm. But at the same token, if, like you said before, if that's your identity, yeah, you're not benefiting yourself long term. Yeah. Yeah. You're not helping anybody else, you know, because your family's looking at you like, bro, who's that guy on the couch that hasn't moved for hours? Like, cause you go from cop, retired, now you're on your couch. Cause every cop talks, man, I can't wait to get the hell out of here. I'm not doing anything, man. I'm just going to chill. You chill for a couple of weeks and you're like. That doesn't work. (laughs) That's why they die within two to three years after retirement. In their sleep. You know what I mean? Just, no, man, I don't want to die, Paul. I love life, dude. I want to live forever, bro. Your first goal, my my theory is. Your first goal should be to get as many years in retirement as you gave them in working. Yeah, it's going to so happen. If, if you were on the job for 30 years, then yeah. your minimum goal is to get 30 years back in yeah. retirement. Good years, though. Yes. yes. Good years, man. I want to do some fishing, right? I do my running. You know, I do my workouts. Weekends, I hit the beach. As soon as I get out of here, man, I'm going to go to the beach, go for a nice long run, and just chill. You know, with the family, um, go to dinner. T- I just want to chill, man. You know, because I know when Monday comes, I got to hit it hard again. But I'm, I'm learning how to enjoy life right now. Now, the job that you have right now, can you mention the company you work for? I can't. Okay. I can't. Can you talk about what your duties are that you do? Yeah. So I, I am a senior director of asset protection, right? So I oversee an investigative team that is responsible for mitigating uh, external theft, internal theft, uh, embezzlement, um, uh, you know, billing fraud and you, you name it in, in, in terms of how you protect the company, 
but my my job is very specific to supply chain and distribution, right? So anything coming into our business and anything that we process in our facility and push out, I, me and my my team and I are responsible for making sure that 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 product moves safely throughout the supply chain, right? So it's a it's a lot of work, man. It's I got a solid solid team, good good guys. And uh, we have a lot of fun. Stressful as hell, right? But uh, it's cool. We have, we have a good time. You mentioned that you already kind of had this lined up coming into it. Yeah. But now that you're in it, for somebody who is coming towards their retirement or their transition and looking at a similar type job, mm-hmm. what qualifications do they, do they need to bring to the table to get a position like what you're doing? The, the hardest part about and I would say read... How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie as often as you can. You get done reading it, read it again, and read it again, and read it again. Because the hardest thing for people to do when they transition out of that public sector and into the private sector is, is how, to, how, to, how to just engage with people, right? Listen, I may not be the most qualified. You may not be the most qualified guy for the job, but you're the right guy. You know what I mean? It's how you interface with people how you communicate, how you present yourself, right? How you are as a leader, a compassionate, kind, loving person as a leader. The rest of the stuff you can learn. Now you got to get your feet wet a little bit before you before you pull chocks and get out of there. You got to start building your network, right? That That's a huge deal. Networking and, and, and building relationships and fostering and nurturing those relationships. You're going to have to do things for free, right? I would say that if you're transitioning out of the police department and, and you have a certain skill set, while you're in the police department, be an auditor, be an investigator, be the community outreach and the community engagement person. I was, I was the equivalent of a grunt in the Marine Corps when I was on the job. All I did was chase people with guns. That's all I did in South Central Los Angeles and in South Los Angeles. That's all I did. Guns, guns, chase people, climb fences, shootings. That's all I wanted to do. But how does that, how does that help me when I get out? It, it doesn't. You know, you know, you know what I mean? It doesn't help you. It's fun at the time. Yeah. Be an investigator, develop your investigative skill set. be an auditor, be, you know, go work inside, go work internal affairs, man. You know, learn how to do things. That now you're translate. really going to make everybody <laughs> mad. Go work internal <laughs> whatever, affairs. Dan. <laughs> what, you know, it's like one of those things, like whatever, like, you know, people call me sometimes they go, Hey man, what should I do with my career? What, do whatever the hell you want to do. Just make sure, like my dad told me when I joined the Marine Corps, when you get out to the Marine Corps, you're going to have a, a very specific skill set. I was a helicopter mechanic. I worked on flight control systems. I wasn't a grunt, man. I wasn't out there, you know, running and gunning. But I had something. For when I get out, I, I had a very special set of skills. While you're on the police department, develop a very special set of skills, something that is the anomaly, right? You don't have to push a black and white your whole career. Be an investigator. Be a detective, be an auditor, be, you know, work community engagement, work with the homeless, work with little kids. Because when you get out, people are going to say, what else can you do besides push your black and white? Well, not much. Well, what else can you do besides, you know, chase a guy, set up a perimeter, right? Set up containment, communicate, coordinate, control, contain, get resources, lock the place down, do a canine search, find the gun, collect evidence, find the bad guy, book him. You don't do that None anywhere else, None of that transitions else, to the civilian world. Nobody cares, 
Nobody cares. What they care about is how can you protect my company? How can you make my company money? Right. And what do you want for that? Well, this is what I'm going to do for you. And this is what I want. You got it. No problem. And can you talk to people? Can you be kind, compassionate? Right. Can, can you, can you be articulate? Can you convey a message? Right. Um, that's what they want, man. And the, the reality of it is this. If, if you're an asshole in the civilian world, you're out. You're done. As a cop, you can run your mouth at the station, talk this, talk. I'm not writing that ticket. I'm not doing this. I'm not staying here. I'm not, I'm not working overtime or, you know what, Sarge, I'm not doing X, Y, and Z. And they'll deal with it. They'll just move your ass to the front desk, right? And you can sit at the front desk and write paper all day. On the civilian side, hey, I need you to do X, Y, and Z. I'm not doing it. Get your shit. Get out of here. Bye. Because I got 50 people waiting in line to take your job. You know what I mean? Hey, I need you to wear a collar shirt tomorrow. I need you to wear a tie. I'm not doing that. Bye. Bye. But I got a family. Don't care. Right? But I got mouse. Don't care. But I got a car note. Oh, well. You should have wore a shirt and tie. You should have <laughs> wore a shirt and tie. Right? You should have shined your shoes. Right? You should have said, yes, sir. No problem. I got it. Right? You should have said, yes, ma'am. No problem. I'll have it to you tomorrow. No big deal. It, it, you got to know, man, that it's a whole different ball of wax, whole different set of rules, man. You know, um, and, and that's that I think that that's the hardest part that people have. You know, it's it's tough because nobody's going to go to bat for you. You're on your own. You know what I mean? So the company you work for is quite large. Are they based in Southern California? Yeah. So yeah. you were able to find a, a company that, that allowed you to stay in Southern California. But with the level that you're at, do you have to travel frequently? Um, I used to. It, before I got this job, I was already working on my own thing, right? And I was traveling quite a bit. Um, and because I had done that and because I had built relationships, I got this job. Struggled hard still struggle because just adapting you know, to the yeah. corporate world. Um, no, I did that. I did that with ease. Okay. Right. Because I, I had developed a very special skill set of in communications. Right. Um, so that was okay. It's just that you getting cross-functional buy-in is very difficult. Right. It's because everybody wants to die on their own hill. Um, and with my job, I have to bring people together and I have to get people to, to look at things uh, from a different perspective and then come to terms with the fact that, hey, maybe this process is wrong or maybe we, we're missing something here and getting people to understand that I can't get there without Paul. I can't get there without Mike or John or Jane or Jill, right? I, and, and that's the Marine Corps and that's LAPD, right? It's got to serve a warrant, got to hit this house tomorrow, four o'clock, ready, set, go. Hey, but... Get it done. No, but it, mm -mm. get it done. And so on LAPD, hey, Paul, I need a favor, man. I'm going to write this warrant. I'm going to hit this house. I'm going to bring this case to you tomorrow. I need you to be in at 530. No problem. Got it. Bringing that into the corporate world, right where I'm at, it's, that was tough because I was used to just making a phone call and things just happening. And the person on the other end of the line said, I got it. Now I have to say, Hey, Paul, let me take you to lunch. You drink coffee? Yeah. I'll, I'll bring you some coffee tomorrow. 
Just give me five minutes. All right, no problem. Relationships, man. Networking, relationships. How to win friends and influence people. You know, it's a challenge, but but I like it a lot. You still got the apparel company going? Uh, no, man. When COVID hit, you know, that came to a screeching halt, man. I, I tried my hand at, at that at, at battle cry, which is something that I still believe in. Um, but, hey, either you're a businessman or a businesswoman or you're not. And if you're not, you got you to gotta work really hard. Everybody wants to have their own business, right? But they don't see what happens behind the curtain. It's a lot of work, man. You, you can't part-time your own business. You can't do it, man. And I know guys that try to do Not it. Not if you want to be successful yeah, at it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's glamorous. You can't part-time your own business. You know, you're going to fail. And, and I knew that. And I knew. And, 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 I'm, and, and I want to get to financial freedom right now. I'm just focused on, on getting where I need to be so that I can come back and then reinvest into my own business again. That's, that's, that's my plan. Um, but no, it's not going right now. And on top of that, you and your wife run a cafe restaurant, correct? Yeah, that's her thing. She makes it very clear. This is my business. You stay but, out. Yeah, I stay out. No, I, I help out, but that, that's her business. I can't take credit for any, any success that she's built. What type of food? Off of that. It's, uh, it's custom handmade ice cream, handmade cookies, organic coffee, partnered with a guy in Compton who runs a very successful you know, coffee company. And uh, we're all about um, the community, man, hire from within the community, all about um, the movement, man, for, for young kids in the inner city. Uh, that's her thing. And uh, she's killing it, man. Is your uh, wife uh, Southern California, L.A., yeah, born yeah, and raised? Yeah, yeah. Uh, right. Yeah. Southeast L.A., man. What's the company name so we can... It's called Milk and Cookies L.A. Milk and Cookies L.A. It's in Southgate, California, man. The it, whole it, social it media thing, Instagram, yeah, the whole nine yeah, yards? Yeah, you name it, it's in there. You know, Milk and Cookies L.A. It, it, it cracks. It's pretty good. <laughs> it'll, it'll, it'll hit you right here, man. Yeah. I appreciate your openness to talk about what you yeah. dealt with. I appreciate you, man. Any last thing that you can advice you could give to somebody who's kind of maybe in the middle of that right now, you know, maybe they're going down their, their, yeah. their dark circle. I don't know, Paul, you know, it's, it's a great question. Um, I don't, I don't like to give advice, man. I would just, I would just recommend that if you're feeling something and it doesn't feel right, it's okay to ask a question. It, it really is okay to call somebody and go, Hey man, um, I got so wasted last night or in my case, like, Hey man, like I keep having these nightmares. What the hell's going on? Right. If you don't know, ask a question, man. I mean, you're in this line of work where you're trying to solve everybody else's problems. And, and through that, you, you, you forget that you got your own set of problems and, and half the shit you're creating for yourself, you know, uh, not advice. I would just recommend that you pick up the phone and call somebody, man. You get on Instagram, they have cerebral, you know, that's like a mental health app or something like that. And just whatever you got to do to learn and educate yourself on what this is, you got to do it. I'm no expert, man. And I'm not going to speak to it, but read, learn, disconnect, get away, uh, be in, be in nature, man, be in nature, have a friend, man. I, I hope that after this, Paul, you and I remain friends, dude, like that we talk or whatever, and maybe, you know, go for a run or something, get a workout in, you know, I need healthy, good, healthy relationships. And, and, and lastly, 
and, and I hope this doesn't come off the wrong way, but guys, you need to be around good, solid guys, right? You, you need, you, you need, you know, I know guys that that love jujitsu, man, and that's awesome because they get to roll around and get punched in the face and get twisted up in a knot. That's good stuff. You know, I was on the LAPD boxing team. I got cracked in the face a few times. I like that stuff. It's okay to be rough and rugged sometimes. You know what I mean? You need good, healthy relationships with, with, with your male counterparts, man. That's, that's good stuff. And not just males. I mean, you need to have quality, strong women in your life. Oh too. yeah, dude. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. hundred percent. And the thing is, and not to go on a different tangent or a different soapbox, but you need to be thinking about who you're exposing your kids to. And if you're exposing them to not strong men or not strong women, yeah. what are they going to grow up to be? Yeah. hundred percent. And that starts with you too, man. True. You know? Um, yeah, man, I, I'm lucky. I got some good guys in my life that have, that have really been there for me, man. Good people. And I hope you're one of them. Myself included. Appreciate I appreciate it, your time. I yeah. appreciate you coming here. Appreciate you, brother. Thanks, man. Thank you for taking your time to listen to the podcast. I truly hope you enjoyed it. Not only is the podcast available on audio platforms, but you can also watch it on YouTube at the Transition Drill Podcast channel. Please subscribe for future episodes. The best way you can help the show is by getting the word out. If you think somebody else might enjoy it, I would appreciate it if you would share it with them. Also, if you have the time, please go to Apple Podcasts and leave me a rating. I welcome your feedback, both positive and negative. You can also go to the website, transitiondrillpodcast.com. And through the contact tab, send a message directly to my email with any comments or suggestions. Thank you again, and I hope you tune in for the next one.